First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Thomas Dorsey's gospel hymn, Precious Lord, was Martin Luther King's favorite hymn, one he requested often from the choir at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery and often on the road. And I wonder how it falls on your ear as we sing it this morning, how it falls on your spirit, your intelligence, your hard wiring, not only the literal image of a big, strong God with big, strong hands reaching down to help you, not just the theocentric theology, but also this unabashed expression of dependency, acknowledgement of limitation, imperfection, exhaustion, despair. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. We don't always sing like that or talk like that as Unitarian Universalists, vulnerable, exposed, so honest, hear my cry, hear my call, hold my hand lest I fall. The song is a prayer. And it's one thing to hum it by yourself, but to sing it publicly with other people is a show of significant trust. And maybe in that trusting, in that risk of disclosure, lies a key to resilience, because surely we cannot be nor even pretend to be sturdy and hopeful and powerful and brave on our own all the time, not in these precarious times. Lead me home. That's a line for people who intend to keep on keeping on for a long time, for the long haul. And it's not lead me home to heavenly glory and feather rest on pillows of clouds and denial. It's lead me back to the true home of my conviction. Guide me back to my center, to my deepest commitments and covenants with those I love and with this world I cherish. It's lead me home to my brave and hopeful heart, to my people and my trust, my unshakable faith that this life is a holy gift. And my whole purpose on this earth is to be worthy of it and grateful and laughing and loving and courageous. This song about weakness is an anthem of resilience. When I am weary and worn, when I'm dazed and confused, when yet another fire is burning on yet another continent, when yet another glacier melts into the ocean, when yet another makeshift boat sinks into that ocean beneath the weight of desperate people drowning in despair, when yet another missile is launched by a deluded leader, or a factory closes, or a pipeline snakes through sacred water, or a mudslide buries a neighborhood, or a wall is built where a wall does not be belong, or a gun is fired, or any person, any person, discarded, deported, denied, locked up, locked down, desecrated. Take my hand, hear my prayer, guide my feet, lead me home to what I know is true and good and right. And the song works whether you sing Precious Lord or Precious Friend. We don't have to keep stumbling here over theological semantics all the time. The song is about how you gather around yourself and into yourself enough support to keep yourself strong and brave in a long struggle, lifelong struggle for justice and hope. Who is guiding your feet while you run this race? Because you don't want to and you can't run it alone. And who all are you helping along? 
Ruby Sales is a public theologian who grew up in Alabama, came of age in the civil rights movement. She makes another point about gospel songs like these and the spirituals that came before them. She comes from three generations of Baptist preachers, but the spirituality that shaped her was not from the church where ministers held all the influence, but from Black folk religion, the ancient ground underneath the church. She says, it was a religion that combined the ideals of American democracy with a theological sense of justice. It was a religion that said that people who were considered property and disposable were essential in the eyes of God and even essential in a democracy in which they were enslaved. And it was a religion where the language and the symbols were accessible to everybody. As a seven-year-old, she says, I could sing 50 songs by heart without missing a line. And everybody in the community had access to the theological microphone. And when we prayed or sang to the Lord, what we were doing was contesting out loud the power of the slave Lord, the master, proving that the enslaver was not the alpha and omega of our black life. The human master was not the ultimate meaning of us. And it was not patriarchal. It was a way of slapping the enslaver in the face. What takes your hand and leads you home is something way larger than fear, no matter what you call it. The King holiday that we observe tomorrow is not about nostalgia. It is not about larger-than-life-size heroes who marched across the nation stage 60 years ago, singing songs and righting wrongs with the mystical force of legislative lightsabers before they faded into statues and commemorative postage stamps, having eradicated racism as if it were a strain of scarlet fever, inoculating future generations against this quaint, unpleasant sickness of a distant past. This cannot ever be about nostalgia, because while some things changed, significant, world-shattering, redeeming, gleaming things, yet other things didn't change, and they won't, not soon, not in our lifetime. Some things have definitely changed for the betterment of all of us, the moral and tangible benefit of everybody, and other things, deeper causes, insidious ideas have mutated and festered and gone underground or exploded in ways that nobody could have foreseen in 1964 or 1864 or 1619 when the first ship landed bearing prisoners in chains, kidnapped children and babies and adults from Africa bound for the concentration camps euphemistically called plantations. The core idea that made that voyage possible is still alive among us and within us and around us, and its name is white supremacy. The church exists to illuminate a different core idea. And by church, I'm talking about the Baptist Church of Ruby Sales and Dr. King, but also about the Unitarian Universalist Church, this one, which exists to illuminate a different core idea. The church exists in order relentlessly, unceasingly, unblinkingly to be about the work of dismantling the architecture of white supremacy, which is the founding premise of our country and which we carry in our bones. 
So it's no wonder we get tired and weary and worn, which is why it's sometimes good to sing about the precious friends and faith that hold us up and hold us accountable and hold our hope when we're tempted toward exhaustion or despair. From James Baldwin, famously, these words, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Most of us, he said, are about as eager to change as we were to be born and go through our changes in a similar state of shock. Any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it, the loss of all that gave one an identity, a sense of the end of safety. It's only when we're able, he said, without bitterness or self-pity, to surrender a dream we have long cherished or a privilege we've long possessed that we're set free. We have set ourselves free for higher dreams and greater privileges. A greater privilege than the doctrine of white supremacy we've inherited. What could that be? What would that look like? Earned privilege, shared privilege. It would look like an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It would look like affordable and universal health care and a dignified, guaranteed living wage, a radical and long overdue reconsideration of capitalism, the eradication of racial profiling everywhere, and especially in schools and among the police. It would look like the dismantling of the carceral imagination currently imprisoning so many millions of young Black men. And because the interdependent web of all existence is exactly that, interdependent, Because my survival depends on your survival, depends on everybody's survival and their thriving. It would not look like the bill introduced last week in the House of Representatives in Iowa, the don't say gay bill, banning instruction in the public schools on gender identity and sexual orientation, or the companion bill, barring the affirmation in schools of preferred pronouns without parental consent, bills mirroring recent transphobic pronouncements by the Iowa Roman Catholic Archdiocese. And let's be clear, transphobic means trans dangerous, literally life-threatening to trans children, trans youth, trans adults. It would not look like that. Not everything that is faced can be changed, said Baldwin, but nothing can change until it's faced. He went on, one must say yes to life. Embrace it wherever it's found. And it's found in terrible places for nothing is fixed forever and ever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down the rock. Generations do not cease to be born and we are responsible to them because we're the only witnesses they have. The sea rises, he said, the light fails. Lovers cling to each other and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold each other, the moment we break faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. The King holiday is about a recommitment to holding each other, keeping faith with each other as time goes on. Each other meaning everybody. 
Congressman John Lewis told this strange and wondrous story many times, the one Heidi shared with you about being in a mighty storm when he was four years old with all of his cousins and his aunt Seneva. They were all outdoors when the sky got dark and the wind was wild and she called them in and a hurricane or tornado shook the wood frame house so powerfully that they could see the floorboards peeling up from the dirt below as if it were a tent. They were terrified and they thought to scatter, but instead they joined their hands and all their weight walking toward the spot to press it down. And then they walked the other way when another corner threatened to rise up and they kept on like that, walking hand in hand, stomping all their feet until the storm died down. Lewis said for him, this was a metaphor for the principle, the spiritual idea called beloved community. We're still doing it, he said. You and I are like children holding hands, walking with the wind in the endless struggle to respond with decency and dignity to the challenges before us. It was not about saving the house, nor even staying alive. It's about moving with dignity and decency together. So how we go is as important as any achievement or destination. That is hard right there. That is hard for high-achieving Unitarian Universalists to understand or want to believe. It's not only or even mostly about the goal. It's how we go. Beloved community is an old idea. For the 12 most active years of his public ministry, from 1956 until his death in 68, Martin Luther King used the phrase in speeches and sermons and articles, interviews, most of his books. He learned it from his study of nonviolence, from his reading of Gandhi and his reading of Josiah Royce, philosopher and co-founder on the eve of World War I of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, which still thrives today and of which King was a member. For a hundred years, they've been committed to the reconciliation of nations and peoples, and also to a kind of reconciliation within people, the balance of conscience against the record of our daily life and practice, the balance of hope against our paralysis of fear, the balance of action and activism with reflection and prayer. The beloved community was not a goal or destination. It was not any kind of idealistic Christian utopia, but a way of being in yourself spiritually, politically, economically, emotionally, intellectually. Beloved community is an attitude. It's an orientation of the spirit. It's a disciplined understanding of your relationship to all the living things. If you're religious, it's a religious discipline. It goes by many names. If you're seeking spiritual wholeness, spiritual balance, it's a practice. If you're an ethical humanist, it is a deliberate moral stance. It's a spiritual politics. And of all the legacies that King bequeathed to us, including legislation, including the Voting Rights Act, including the dismantling of legal segregation, including so many tangible things, I really think the construct of beloved community may prove in time over the long arc of time to be the most radical and durable and transformative thing. Alex Capitan is a Unitarian Universalist minister who, together with Reverend Michael Slack, 
is leading this powerful transformational work now in our movement on transgender inclusion. Alex says that for them, beloved community is defined as much by what it is not as by what it is. And this matters because we all toss the term around now all the time, and we should be clear about what it means. Beloved community, says Alex Capitan, is not small. It is not an enclave of safety. It can't be a gated community or one with a door or any barrier at all. So a congregation cannot technically be a beloved community because a congregation can never include everybody and nor does it intend to. A congregation intends to be one intentional circle among and connected to many, many others. So a church like this can practice beloved community and live by and lean toward its intention. But the beloved community is something way bigger. It's the widest circle of inclusive love you can imagine, embracing ancestors, descendants, all of us. And it cannot be homogeneous in any way. No no single voice or party or denomination can own it. It intends a welcome so wide that everyone in the sphere has equivalent standing. And the power derives from the risk of pluralism. For this reason, beloved community is never devoid of conflict, but it's brave in the hard work of listening and forgiveness, the hard work of working it out, no souls overboard. Ruby Sales talked about slapping the master, but she meant slapping down enslavement, not hitting somebody. Anger flares, righteous outrage. And the community is strengthened thereby if everybody stays at the table, learning and growing together. And the goal is never to destroy your opponent or cast them out, but to stay in the struggle till love wins, which means your whole life. It's not easy, as we know from living in close quarters all the time with our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, our congregation. It's not easy in this cultural moment when vicious and violent dehumanization is rampant on social media and other media and in real life space. When a reporter asked John Lewis once what beloved community looks like in real time, he says that would look like a country at peace with itself, peace among the people and peace inside each person. It means that every action has that goal in mind, and that's what makes it so hard and so holy. John Lewis had his skull fractured at Selma by white people on horses with batons, white police on horses. Another time in Mississippi during the freeding rides, he was beaten unconscious and left to bleed to death under a bus. Another time he spent 40 days in a Mississippi jail. Nobody knew where he was nor what was done to him there. But still, till the end of his life, he spoke about nonviolence as the central tenet of his life. Ruby Sales' life was changed when at age 17, she was standing on a sidewalk and a white man pointed a gun at her. She didn't see it, but another white man did, a young Episcopal divinity student. He leapt in front of her and he was instantly killed by the bullet. Her life as a Black woman, her Black life, has been defined, therefore, by her relationship in a single second to two white men. And at age 75, she's still talking about the holy imperative of right relationship 
and love. In an interview with Krista Tippett, Ruby Sales talked about how in the years following the heyday of the civil rights movement, people, Black people, white people, lost track of its intention. She said, we've all misrepresented or misremembered that the movement was not essentially about jobs, position, status, nor even desegregation. These things mattered, obviously, but quote, Quoting her now, when King talked about the mountaintop, he was talking about a higher level of consciousness, an existential shift in how we hold ourselves in relationship to each other and God and the mystery and the eternal. The movement got materialized, she said, and the next generation went out brightly expecting integration everywhere when what was needed and wanted was community a defining, redefining of sacred relationship. And it was hard for people then, it still is, Black people, white people, not to feel disappointed or defeated, tired, weak, and worn. We've already done that 30, 40 years ago because they, we, our country, lost track of the ultimate goal, which was and remains a spiritual goal. Ruby Sales says, I got involved in the Southern Freedom Movement, not merely because I was angry about injustice, but because I love justice. So it's where you begin your conversation. Most people begin, she says, with, I hate this, I hate that, but they never talk about what it is they love. So I think that what we have to begin is to have a conversation that incorporates a vision of love with a vision of outrage, and I don't see those things as being against each other. She goes on, I grew up in this folk tradition that positioned us to stand against the wind, against the wind of American apartheid. Our parents were spiritual geniuses who created a world and a language where the notion that I was inadequate or less than never touched my consciousness. I grew up believing I was a first-class person. Why not? Our parents were spiritual geniuses who taught us something serene about love. Hate was not anything in our vocabulary. I knew and I know I can't control this world, but I can control myself, my internal life, and you will never coerce me into hating you. No coercion into hate, no spiral to despair. Your inward life is yours alone to cultivate and cherish. Your life in community is held safe by the bonds of history and hope, which are larger than you, stronger than you, and more various and variegated than your own small, thin strand and singular perspective. You are part of, an essential part of, not just a party or a family or a congregation or a movement, but the beloved community, which is a radical and revolutionary household. And when you are weary, and worn. And when the weight of war and greed and ignorance and arrogance and devastation all around presses in from every side, rises like the waters, other hands will reach for yours. Other feet will hold the fragile house of hope secure to the foundation. Other voices take the song till you're strong enough to sing again. And then you find your voice and you let the others rest. This is what we need to honor on the holiday tomorrow, this spiritual inheritance of wisdom, power, hope, and love for the long haul. 
Barbara Kingsolver, novelist, poet, reminds us how holy and hard and gritty this is. Her poem is called Hope, an Owner's Manual. And this is about religion for the long, long haul. Look, you might as well know this thing is going to take endless repair. Rubber bands, crazy glue, heartstrings, sunrise. All of these are useful, also feathers. To keep it humming, sometimes you have to stand on an incline where everything looks possible. On the line you drew yourself or in the grocery line, making faces at a toddler secretly over his mother's shoulder. You might have to pop the clutch and run past all the evidence, past everyone who's laughing or praying for you. Definitely you don't want to go directly to jail, but still, here you go. Passing time, passing strange, don't pass this up. In the worst of times, you'll have to park it and fly by the seat of your pants, tiptoe past the dogs of the apocalypse that are sleeping in the shade of your future. Pass your hope like a bad check. You might still have just enough time to make a deposit. And if somebody says your money or your life, you may have to say life and mean it. For just a moment, we'll hold silence together. Lift Every Voice and Sing was written 123 years ago by James Weldon Johnson and his brother Rosamond to commemorate the birthday of Abraham Lincoln at a ceremony organized by young Black men in Jacksonville, Florida in 1900. James Weldon Johnson wrote, The song was sung by a chorus of 500 colored schoolchildren. So I just want to stop there and have you imagine that. Shortly afterwards, he said, my brother and I moved away to New York and the song passed out of our minds, but the school children of Jacksonville kept on singing it and they went off to other schools and sang it. They became teachers and taught it to more children. Within 20 years, it was being sung all over the South and today it is popularly called the Negro National Anthem. I do not know, he said, if there's a personal God. I do not know how I can know, and I do not see how my knowing could matter. What does matter, I believe, is how I deal with myself and how I deal with my fellows. I feel that I can practice a conduct toward myself and toward others that will constitute a basis for an adequate religion, a religion that in the midst of pain, joy, frustration, and bewilderment may yet comprehend spirituality and beauty and happiness for everyone. The lines of this song repay me, he said, in an elation of almost exquisite anguish whenever I hear them sung by Negro children. This is not an easy song to sing. The music is difficult and strange. The words are difficult, as they must be, to hold both the history and the hope of the people. It's not our song, most of us here. And so we sing with the humbleness and the deep reverence of guests in somebody else's sacred space and sacred history. Mm -hmm. 